COVID-19 restrictions are being lifted across the country and provinces are trying to find a path back to normalcy while trying to limit the severity of a probable next wave. While cases have fallen off in some areas, Ontario is letting people out of lockdown while still seeing increases in the number of COVID-19 patients. I'm Dave Breckenridge and this is 10-3. The National Post's Richard Warnica joins me to talk about why Ontario is lifting restrictions now, what pitfalls they could face, and why Ontario's recovery is so important to the rest of Canada. Don't forget you can subscribe to this show on all your favorite listening platforms, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, or more. We'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So Richard, Ontario, like many other provinces and states, is now letting people out of lockdown. And one of the big measures with regard to lifting restrictions has been whether the virus is under control. So the simplest question is, is that the case in Ontario like it is in places like New Brunswick and BC? It's definitely not anywhere near what it is in New Brunswick and BC. Uh, New Brunswick effectively has zero spread of the virus right now. I, I think BC had two new cases yesterday. Ontario is still up in the 400s. I think it was an average, seven-day rolling average, something like 380 over the last week. Obviously, Ontario is a lot bigger than New Brunswick, bigger even than BC, but those numbers still indicate an outbreak that a lot of people would say is not fully in control. If that question hasn't been answered about whether the COVID-19 is under control in Ontario, why move to the first step of reopening? Is it just because it's getting nicer outside, cases may be on the wane, even though you're still seeing new cases and people are just getting kind of squirrely? The trend lines week over week have been reducing, and I think the estimation from the government and, and from public health was that this is moving in the right direction and we have it under control enough to begin some gradual loosening. Mm -hmm. You know, it's hugely controversial and hugely fraught because it's not like there are a ton of people who have a lot of experience managing massive pandemic lockdowns. Like there's not a lot of 150-year-old epidemiologists who can tell you how they did it in the Spanish flu. Mm -hmm. So you do get a lot of disagreement among public health people, among epidemiologists, among researchers working on different models as to what under control is. I think in Ontario, it's a combination of public health believes their modeling suggests it's going to keep going down even if we open up. And I think this is really important. Like, lockdown can't last forever just from a societal control point of view. Yeah. If you don't start giving people some signs of easing, you're going to start losing social acceptance of the measures you're going to have to take. And that's going to become really important if and when we get hit by a big second wave, which a lot of experts think is coming almost no matter what we do. So we have to have the societal buy-in necessary to be able to say in two months, three months, maybe six months, we have to do this all over again. Right. Like right now, the argument goes that you can't force people to stay under lockdown until we hit zero cases. That's just not tenable. Yeah. And it's, it's certainly not tenable for until we get to a vaccine, right? Because, you know, optimistic projections for a vaccine are 18 to 24 months. Mm -hmm. And you have to come up with a way to live our lives safely and mitigate risk. The example I've heard from a number of doctors now is we have to start thinking about it like sex in a way. 
Like, you know, there's no such thing as safe sex, but there is safer sex. Yeah. The number one way, obviously, to eliminate all STDs would be for no one to have sex, but that's never going to happen. So, how do we come up with mitigation methods that allow us to live something more normal than what we've been living, something more livable than what we've been living while reducing that risk as low as we can? You know, you talk about managing this kind of like safer sex you know, people have different ways of managing that. And as you say, abstinence is one way, but it's not necessarily the recommended way because you can't stop people from having sex. What is Ontario doing to make life safer once people leave their homes and start going to businesses and places like that? Like what measures have they put in place and are there any that kind of make them stand out from other provinces? The measures that are necessary to control COVID once we start loosening are pretty universally accepted. You know, everyone's heard it by this point. It's testing, contact tracing, and supported isolation. The question isn't what should we do, it's how well are we doing it. And what I found really kind of disturbing in all my reporting for the piece we're talking about is how often I would talk to really senior medical people in this province, like world-leading epidemiologists, world-leading public health researchers. And I would ask them, you know, how is contact tracing going? How is testing going? What are we doing on isolation? And they would laugh at me. (laughs) They would laugh and go, hey, man, if you find out, please let me know. We'd love to know this. That to me is, is the scary part for Ontario right now is how little the public knows about how ready we are. I'm a pretty good reporter. I'm I'm good at my job. I tried to dig pretty hard at contact tracing just for one element for a couple of weeks. How are we doing? And I couldn't get a straight answer from local public health units, from the province, from Public Health Ontario beyond, well, we're doing good and it's getting better. But what does that mean? Exactly. (laughs) What does doing good and getting better mean? Exactly. I mean, you've been around journalism long enough. We all know that if they're not going to give you specifics, it's probably because the specifics aren't very good. (laughs) Contact tracing is, is, is harder for people to grasp than testing. I think we've talked so much about testing because it's easy to say we're testing X number of people we want to be at Y. Contact tracing is this like literally medieval technology, which involves tracking down everyone someone's been close to and finding out if they're sick and convincing them to go into quarantine. And it's kind of an awkward process and it's not super easy to grasp, but it is like vital. It's as important as testing if you're going to control this in the community. Mm -hmm. Because once we start opening up again, once people start wandering around and seeing their friends and hugging their grandmas, there are going to be new cases. The only way we prevent those new cases from becoming outbreaks and becoming new pandemics is if we squash them before they can spread. And you have to find out quickly and stop the spread. And that takes contact tracing. One of the things that I've seen in in other jurisdictions, I know Alberta has launched an app to aid in the contact tracing process. It has had to deal with its own problems, whether it works properly on certain operating systems and whatnot. But you see that in other places like Australia, other countries have technological answers to the contact tracing problem. Has Ontario done anything like that? Are they looking at that kind of technology to, to help in the process? Yeah, Ontario is, I know they're at review stage with several app proposals. And I I did quite a bit of reporting on that and ended up not putting it in my story, primarily because the answer I kept getting was, at this point, you can't really rely on them. Like, maybe they can help you, but you need to have a fully functioning, super robust, old-fashioned contact tracing system in place and hope that an app 
can then improve that process. You can't count on it to replace it. Mm -hmm. You know, I was watching this lecture by this guy, Gabriel Leung. He's the head of the medical school at Hong Kong University. And a lot of people think he's literally the smartest guy alive on pandemic control. And someone asked him this question, what's the best technology to fight this, to do contact tracing? And he sort of paused and he looked at the camera and he said, the best technology is medieval technology. It's the stuff we've been doing since the 15th century. It's finding people manually who have been exposed to this and convincing them to stay inside until they're safe. Mm -hmm. That's it. Like, maybe you can get an app to help you, but don't rely on it. Don't count on it. It's not going to save you in two weeks or four weeks or a month. You also mentioned testing being part of that pair of really key elements, testing and contact tracing. Has Ontario been able to ramp up its testing capacity in the last two months? We were, like most jurisdictions, in a dreadful place when this started. And part of that was out of Ontario's control. There was just this worldwide shortage in the materials necessary for these tests. But it has improved. It hasn't gotten anywhere near where experts told me we needed to be. You know, I think we had something like 7,000 tests yesterday. Our daily goal is 20,000. And realistically, what experts told me is is we should be around 40,000. Mm-hmm. The other half of that is it's not just how many people you test, right? It's who you're testing and why. And what a lot of people pointed out to me was there are a lot of populations Ontario isn't testing now that is going to be a big problem once we start opening up. We're not doing what's called surveillance testing, which is almost like a public opinion poll for disease testing, where you just go out and start randomly sampling the population to see where it's popping up where you wouldn't expect. And the other thing we're not testing is we're not testing what they call asymptomatic contacts. So let's say me and you were hanging out for 15 minutes up close and you got sick. If I didn't have symptoms, I'm not getting tested. And a lot of people think that's a problem. Hmm. Are other provinces doing that in Canada? Do you know? I don't have a good sense of where that is in all of Canada. I know other jurisdictions like Korea has done surveillance testing very aggressively and asymptomatic contact testing. Mm -hmm. I know China certainly has done much more aggressive surveillance and asymptomatic, but I don't know the other provinces. Once we get to a place where we have more testing and better tracing, and officials are able to identify more cases, ideally we isolate people. We put them in quarantine for two weeks so they don't run the risk of infecting more people. But in a province as populous as Ontario and with cities as densely packed as Toronto, that's not always easy for everyone. So how do we manage that? Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, the answer in Ontario right now is we don't really. And you've hit on a really important point, which is this idea of not just isolation, but supported isolation. So if I got sick now and tested positive, I would be told to go home and isolate in my small Toronto apartment with my family. Mm -hmm. And the guidance I would be given would be just completely avoid your family inside your house for the next two weeks. (laughs) You know, I'm, I'm from Alberta. I'm from Calgary. Most of the kids I grew up with, you could probably do that in their house in the big suburban basements and stuff like that. Mm But a family living in an apartment, a family living with a bunch of kids, a family living with one bathroom or one kitchen, it's just not practical. And you've seen the real risks of this in some of the worst outbreaks in the US, where most of the new case growth is coming from people's families. So someone's getting sick in the community, if they're an essential worker, a meat packer, that kind of thing. 
they're bringing it home and their whole family's getting sick. And it's really, really dangerous when you start looking at multi-generational homes. Yeah. So is grandma living at home? Okay, her son is out in the community working at a meatpacking plant. He comes home. There's no room in his apartment to isolate everyone. He gets sick. Grandma gets sick. Then you got a real problem. So how does that get managed? Does the government step in and find places for these people to go? Is it empty hotels because no one's traveling right now? What's the solution there? That's one of the ideas I've heard, which is to use the empty hotel space to really have that option available for people who can't isolate safely at home. It's what we're doing to an extent for the homeless population in Toronto. But a lot of people have suggested to me, you need to massively expand that and start looking at not just people who don't have homes, but people who have homes where you can't practically isolate away from your family. One of the things you mentioned earlier regarding the move to reopen Ontario was the idea that you want people to trust authorities uh, should they say, we have to do this again. When a second wave hits, as a lot of experts think it will. And one thing that can be said about the Ford government, at least from looking in from the outside, is it seems like Premier Doug Ford has earned himself a lot of trust through his performance during this pandemic. But does that trust transfer to other parts of his government and health officials? And how quickly could it erode if the reopening doesn't go smoothly? I think it's actually started to erode somewhat already. And part of that, I think, is that they did messaging really well in Ontario early because it was simple, it was direct. You know, it's the thing that the Fords are great at, which is simple message aimed at the common person. And I think we've really lost that to an extent. And I don't know how much you guys are following this out where you guys are, but over the Mother's Day weekend, Doug Ford's daughters came over to his house, which was a clear breach in the existing rules in Ontario. On its own, the act of that isn't a big deal. Why it's a problem is Doug Ford has made himself the public face of the public message of this pandemic in Ontario, and that muddies the water for people. It gets more complicated for them. And, you know, one of the things I've reported on during this pandemic is how people absorb complicated messages. And the more muddy they get, the less clear they get, the more likely people are to just throw their hands up and say, I'm never going to understand this. I'm just going to do what makes sense for me. And I think we're already seeing that in Ontario. Just anecdotally being outside now, you are seeing far few people adhere to the kind of rules that are still in place. They're just seeing these kind of mixed messages about what opening means, what's allowed. And they're taking that as an excuse to go on with their lives. And I think we're going to get thwacked. We've mentioned off the top that places like BC and New Brunswick are faring a lot better when it comes to cases. Some of that is due to population. Some of that is due to how the government has managed the pandemic. Why so much focus on what Ontario is doing? What is it about Ontario that kind of could hint at what could happen or what is happening in Canada? For me personally, it's because I live here and I, I tend to report on this province. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But I'm from out west, so I'm always very cognizant of the Ontario is not the center of the universe. Why are you acting like it is lobby? But there is no recovery in Canada if Ontario doesn't recover, right? Mm -hmm. It's more than a third of the national population. It's a massive section of the economy. It's the gateway into transportation into the rest of the world for this country. If Ontario doesn't get this right, Canada loses. That's plain and simple. Maybe Nova Scotia does badly and we survive. Maybe even Saskatchewan does badly. 
and we survive and we manage and we get through it. If Ontario doesn't do this near perfectly, the rest of the country will suffer. That's unequivocal. So <laughs> that's why focus on Ontario. Yeah, no, and that, that makes perfect sense. It is definitely something that uh, all eyes of the country will be on over the next few weeks. Richard, thanks for your time. Hey, thanks so much. Talk to you soon. 10-3 is produced by Carson Jarama. Theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Richard Warnica. More from him at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.